Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Welcome to our Conversation with the Candidates series. I'm Adam Sexton, and our guest this evening is Democratic Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio. We'll be getting to know the congressman tonight and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Tim Ryan was born in Niles, Ohio in 1973 and went to John F. Kennedy High School in Warren, Ohio. He earned his bachelor's degree in political science from Bowling Green before coming here to New Hampshire to get his law degree from the Franklin Pierce Law Center, now the UNH School of Law. Ryan worked as a congressional aide in the U.S. House and then served in the Ohio State Senate. In 2002, he was elected as a U.S. representative from Ohio and has been re-elected eight times. Ryan is a member of the House Appropriations Committee. He's a co-chair of the Congressional Addiction Treatment and Recovery Caucus, a member of the Bipartisan Task Force to Combat the Heroin Epidemic, and co-chair of the Congressional Manufacturing Caucus, which seeks to strengthen the country's manufacturing base and reform trade policies. He has written several books, including one about the return of the American family farm. Congressman Ryan is married and has three children. Representative Ryan, thanks so much for joining us this evening. We Always appreciate it. a pleasure. It. Thank you. So uh, you jumped into the race, and we've got this growing field of Democrats. I think 16 officially now with more to come, heading towards 18 to 20. Mm -hmm. What made you look at this field of Democrats and say, you know what, I got this? Well, I, I can win. I can beat Donald Trump. I come from an area of the country where I do very well in my congressional races, and, and Trump won three of my districts, three of my counties. And we've got to beat them. We've got to win Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. We've got, we've got great candidates in the race, but I, I know I can, I can beat him. And I know I can get the economy squared away. I, I really understand the old economy because I come from the old Rust Belt and I've seen it unwind over the last 30 years, 40 years. And we've been preparing for the future economy. Uh, and, and I understand that. And I, I know I can use the, the power of the White House to get the job done for us. So a lot of voters are looking for something different, and President Trump won on an anti-Washington message. When voters are asking you, hey, what can you bring to Washington that's different since you've been there for so long, what do you say? Well, unite the country. I mean, I get along with Republicans very well. Again, I represent a district where I did well, and you know, a lot of people went and voted for Donald Trump. We're not gonna get anything done if we don't come together. You can have the best 10-point plan on education, the economy, whatever it is, if we don't, unify, we're done. And, and, and the most important thing for us to do is to rebuild the middle class. You know, the, and we're, we're weak now because we're so divided. And Russia likes the fact that we're divided. China loves the fact that we're divided. So the best thing we can do is come together. I can unite this country and set a really bold aspirational agenda that's going to rebuild the middle class. You talk about uniting the country. How do you find a bipartisan consensus in Washington, though? Are there any specifics there? I think it's important to actually campaign on what you're going to do. I don't know if this sounds like a novel idea or not, but you know, lay out some, some plans. I, we don't need the 10-point plan, but I think a big vision around electric vehicles, for example. You know, We have one to two million electric vehicles today. We're going to have 30 million uh, by 2030. I want us to make those in the United States. I want us to make the batteries in the United States. I want us to make the charging stations in the United States. 
Is that a Democrat idea? Is that a Republican idea? You know, how do we bring the free market and the government and the educational institutions and philanthropy and venture capitalists all together around a big agenda? That's the job of the president of the United States. It's the most vital office in our democracy. And I feel like the president is fiddling around on his phone. He's bashing the former first ladies. Meanwhile, the middle class is eroding. And the president's got to set a big vision and bring people together to get it done. You mentioned that the president did well in parts of your congressional district in 2016. He did so on a message of make America great again. Do you agree with that message? Well, we're falling behind. You know, I think the underlying currents of that, yeah, we're, we're not doing well. The middle class is not doing well. The top 1% controls 90% of the wealth in the country. Four to, uh, 40 to 50% of American families can't withstand a four or $500 emergency. I think he tapped into that anxiety, and, you know, it, but he hasn't delivered on it. And that's the reality of it. We just lost 1,700 jobs at a General Motors facility with nothing to replace it. Not electric vehicles, not additive manufacturing, not solar, not wind, not anything. Because there's no plan. Because he's over there fiddling around, starting culture wars, race baiting, whatever it is that he's doing. And so he tapped into it. His, his genius is his ability to market. But we don't need a marketer. We don't need someone who can star in a reality TV show. We don't need a superstar. We don't need a savior. We need a grinder. We need someone who's going to get in the foxhole with the American people and together solve these really big problems that we have. Do you have any concern right now that the Democratic Party is moving too far to the left? I think the focus has got to be on economics. I mean, the, the reality of it is these issues around criminal justice are critically important. We need criminal justice reform. We need health care reform. You know, we've we just got to have a broader conversation. But the thrust of our conversation has to address the economic anxiety that average people are feeling today. I can't, I can't explain enough to people, and I don't have to in places like New Hampshire and Ohio, but in the Beltway and in some of the financial centers, they don't understand the level of anxiety. We got the GDP and we got the stock market. We need to figure out what the national stress level is. What's the national anxiety level today? It's huge. And the economy's doing super well, supposedly. And the stock market's doing well. And unemployment's low. But yet the anxiety level's high. What's it going to be like if the economy takes a downturn? That's my concern. And if our message as Democrats is not a robust we are going to rebuild the middle class. We are going to cut workers in on the deal. If workers who work hard play by the rules, who take a shower after work, don't trust the Democrats, we're not going to win the presidency. They will trust me, and I will get them back in our camp, and then we'll have a nice coalition to rebuild the country. Congressman Ryan, don't go anywhere. We're not. Gonna, right after the break, we're going to have our studio audience join this conversation. Stay with us. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly, 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. Welcome back to our conversation with the candidate and tonight's guest, Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio. It's time to bring in questions from our audience. I will jump in with a follow-up if necessary, but basically this belongs to the New Hampshire voters right now. So let's get to our first question from Joan Wentworth. Right, thanks. Good evening, Good Congressman evening. Ryan. What are your thoughts on the types of circumstances where the president should or should not issue an executive order? And as president, would you support setting limits on their use? That's a great question. 
Um, it's easy as a member of Congress to say it should be very limited as to whether or not a president should issue uh, executive orders. I, it, everything is circumstantial. Uh, circumstantial. Um, when you look, for example, when President Obama was uh, doing executive orders around DACA, making sure we were protecting those kids. I don't know what the Congress is going to look like. I don't know what we're going to be able to pass or not pass. So it's circumstantial. I will say there'll be a couple principles. Is it, is it going to protect people? Will it help people? Will it help the environment? I mean, there's all kinds of different executive orders you can issue. And as we have this conversation over the course of the next year, I hope people will understand my values. And I would be willing to use executive orders if it's going to support the kind of things that, that we as a country should stand for, like protecting the DACA kids. But I can't give you a specific answer just because, you know, I hope we have a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, but we may not. And so, therefore, you may have to revert to executive orders to protect children or the environment. Thank you, Joan. Next question comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Good evening, Congressman. Thank evening. you for being here for our questions. Thank you. Do you think the federal government should make marijuana legal? I think cannabis should be legal, yes. I think it, at this point there is a, a real issue around the criminal justice system where white kids and white people uh, go to prison four times as much as people of color for the same crime around uh, marijuana. I think that's, that's a civil rights issue when, in, in my estimation. And so I also think there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, we have medical marijuana in Ohio. It's already drawing investment. It's already uh, producing jobs in communities, old Rust Belt communities. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Next question comes from Stephen Kidder. Thank you so much. This is real rapid fire here. <laughs> I mean. um, I'm an ACLU voter, which means I cast, uh, when I cast my ballot, I care about civil liberties. Yes. And an issue that's really important to me is immigration. Um, so across the country, and specifically here in New Hampshire, ICE is pressuring local law enforcement to detain people so that ICE agents can then take custody of them. Will you commit to stopping the use of uh, quote unquote detainers, which pressure law enforcement to do um, federal immigration work? I, I, think the fed, you're, I think you're correct. The federal uh, immigration officials should handle it. I think our local police are already overburdened. I know the heroin epidemic here uh, in, in Manchester and in New Hampshire, we have the same issue in Ohio. The police forces in Ohio are understaffed. They don't need to be doing and uh, executing the federal role. Uh, but I do think it's important that we have those agencies in place to get those heroin dealers or whoever they are potentially uh, out of the country. Mm -hmm. But we have to not overburden the local police and local law enforcement. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Stephen. And a quick follow-up question to that, Congressman. <coughs> What's your perspective on building a wall on the southern border? Because I know Congress has approved funds for this in the mm -hmm. past, and there are structures there. But what do you think about the whole thing? Yeah, well, the idea of having a wall from, from sea to shining sea is ridiculous. We're not going to put a wall in the middle of the Rio Grande River. We're not going to... Uh, eminent domain property from farmers and ranchers in the southern parts of the southern states. And I think what the president has done by declaring a national emergency is taking money from essential military construction projects like at the Portsmouth Navy Yard, uh, like at the Youngstown Air Reserve Station. Money is going to go from projects that we authorized in the United States Congress, we appropriated. He signed the bill into law 
and now he's taking money from there. Now, we have got to be, as Democrats, strong on the border. We just got to be smart about it. There are technologies today that we can use. Again, you can't, you know, 90% of the drugs are coming in through the ports of entry. They're also coming in through the water. And so we've got to make sure that we're, we have enough dogs, enough personnel. That's where really the problem is. Fentanyl is coming in through the United States Postal Service. We've got to crack that nut. That's going to be very difficult. And to blow billions of dollars on a wall that he told people in Ohio and I'm sure in New Hampshire that Mexico was going to pay for it, I think is completely irresponsible. The national emergency in America today is that the middle class is on life support. That's the national emergency, not the wall. Following up on this, uh, family separation policy. Mm -hmm. If you're the president, what do you do uh, with Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, with the management level folks who may not be led there as the President Trump appointees, but who have executed this policy? Do they stay in a role where they could still do something like that? Well, I don't think so. I think you have got to remove people. I mean, you know, part of it is it's coming down the chain of command. Part of it is that President Trump has set this agenda. He has made this a toxic issue politically and to where the United States is literally separating children. I actually went up to Grand Rapids, Michigan and visited children who are our son Brady's age, four and a half years old, where five or six of them are sitting in a classroom uh, by themselves with a teacher and their parents are back in Texas. That is, that is an abhorrent act on behalf of the most powerful country in the world. Those practices need to end immediately. We need to be the country that's looked upon for our values and that we actually care for children and we're not gonna separate them from their parents and understand that the president actually has failed to address the issue in Central America. Why is, if he, need, he needs to pick up his presidential daily briefing every day, actually read it and recognize that gangs are running these countries in Central America. His proposal is to cut the State Department budget for the Central American uh, countries. That's ridiculous. We need to go in there. I'm not saying we need to completely support these com uh, countries, but we need to stabilize them so that their people are safe because the gangs come to the homes, point a gun at the parents and say, we want your daughter to go into the sex trade and we want your son to go into a gang. And if they don't, they get shot. So of course, any parent, I would, you would, or grandparent would say, here's some money, we gotta get you out of here. And that may mean going to the United States. The United States should be strong enough as a country to take those families in and care for them and get them stabilized. But it's the president's issue for not addressing it in the first place. We have a social media question now coming from a Mark Boyd. <clears throat> he asks, uh, Americans continue to pay the highest prescription drug prices in the world. What can be done about this? Well, a couple things. Uh, you know, the, the pharmaceutical company has a lock. So I think we've, we've got to figure out how to, in my estimation, publicly finance campaigns. There's just too much money in politics today. It is ridiculous and the pharmaceutical companies donate a lot of money. We need to negotiate through the Medicare program, the cost down for prescription drugs uh, through the Medicare Part D program. That's essential. They do it in the VA. We should be able to do it. That would help um, bring costs down. A lot of the money that the uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, make is based on the research that the public collectively invests in through the National Institutes of Health. So we have mechanisms within the government to say, hey, you're using our research. How do we con control costs? I think it's really important to, to make sure we put that hammer down on the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, next question comes from Leonard Morrill. 
Thank you for joining us in this conversation. More and more people think that the Electoral College should be eliminated. What is your position and why? Well, I I'm willing to have this conversation uh, about the Electoral College. I just, to be quite honest, you need two-thirds of the votes in the House, two-thirds of the votes in the Senate, two-thirds of the states, when right now two-thirds of the states are controlled by uh, Republicans. This is a conversation we can have, but we've got to focus on the economy. We've got to focus on health care. We've got to focus on retirement security for people. I mean, I understand. I'm frustrated, too, that we're, we're winning the popular vote, uh, but not winning the Electoral College. But we've got to go out and learn how to win elections, and we've got to learn how to win races in the Midwest. And that's got to be our focus. I just don't want us getting distracted about a conversation that is a theoretical discussion that we should maybe have our students debating in, in college. The real-life people are suffering, and, and they're not going to vote for us if we're talking about the Electoral College. We've got to be talking about jobs and wages and pensions and the new economy and getting this, getting this country back on track, unifying the country. I get it, but, and, and I'm happy to have the conversation, but I don't think it's appropriate for us to have right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Leonard. Next question comes from Joan Krimlitz. Welcome. Thank you. Um, what is the federal government's role in making sure that manufacturing <coughs> companies succeed? My first initiative, m my highest priority is for us to establish an industrial policy in the United States. I come from old steel country and we can go back to the late 1970s when we had, had a day called Black Monday in Youngstown when Youngstown Sheet and Tube closed down, September 19, 1977. Uh, and because of that, my father-in-law lost his job for 13 months right after buying a house and having a second baby. And you can, I can go back 20 years where my cousin Donnie worked at Delphi, which supplied General Motors. And he had his last act at the manufacturing facility was to unbolt the machine from the factory floor, put it in a box, and send it to China. Or I can go back a couple weeks when my daughter called me crying uh, that her friend has to leave school because her dad lost his job at General Motors. We have got to be a leader in the world. And the, the, the main issue was in the late 1970s, the technology in the, in the steel mill, in the steel mills in Youngstown, was pre-World War I. The steel industry buried their head in the sand and hoped that the competition and the technology wouldn't destroy them. And my community in this country has been reeling for 30 or 40 years because we failed to do that. So I believe an industrial policy in the United States means this. Artificial intelligence, additive manufacturing, these new technologies, we have no choice. We've got to embrace them. We've got to embrace them and we've got to dominate them. We've got to get them into our older industries. We've got to ramp up productivity and then we've got to cut the worker in on the deal. And there are opportunities to do this and then direct those investments into the distressed communities that have been left behind by the old economy. That to me is an industrial policy. And if I could just say, as Democrats, we cannot be hostile to the free enterprise system. We can be hostile to greed. We can be hostile to income inequality. We can be hostile to concentration of wealth. I am, you are, we all should be. But if we're going to get out of this mess, it's going to be by coming together, and that includes working with the private sector to get the job done and out-compete China, out-beat China economically. That's going to be the key, and it starts with an industrial policy, and that's going to be a signature issue for us. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Joan. Next question comes from George Matthews. Hi, George. 
Thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, what specific plan do you have to beat the president? <laughs> uh, highlight the fact that he has not delivered on his promises. Period. End of story. He, had made, he has made so many promises to people in the industrial Midwest and around the country uh, that he has not, he, he, told, he said he was going to raise taxes on the wealthy, he was going to expand Medicare, uh, he was going to do a one and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill. I'm going to pin that to his backside and he's, he's not going to be able to get away from it because we went in the opposite direction on everything and in fact he's made matters worse because with the tax cut we have projected deficits of almost a trillion dollars a year which means it's going to be even harder to do an infrastructure bill. It's even going to be harder to do the health care piece. It's going to be harder to invest in the education. He has made commitments uh, and, and again all of the problems weren't created by Donald Trump. I don't blame him for all the problems. I blame Donald Trump for not caring enough to try to fix them. He's too distracted. He wants to beat up former first ladies on Twitter. He wants a race bait. He wants to start fights. He wants to throw gasoline on every cultural rift we have in the United States. And we need to come together. I'm going to bring this country together. We're going to have some bold initiatives. We're going to have new strategies to fix old problems. But in essence, when I talk to voters, I say, hey, you gave him a chance. He didn't deliver. Thanks, George. Next question comes from Mary Kirstein. Good evening. According to several sources, the U.S. is responsible for 33% of worldwide armaments exports. If elected, would you take action to decrease the U.S. role in international arms sales? Well, I think it's important that we don't pepper the world with, with weapons. Uh, most of this, and I, I don't know that uh, stat intimately, but I would say most of this has come from what happened uh, during the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the war in Iraq was an absolute disaster. And he, once again, we've not learned from history where we actually arm people with lots of weapons that we think are our friends in the short term. And it turns out that in the mid to long term, they're not our friends and they use those very armaments against us. We've got to go out in the world and we've got to be a peacemaker. I, I think we have to have a strong military. I think it's critically important with the advance of China, with the advance of Russia, we can't cede that territory. We have to have a strong military. But we've got to make peace in the world. And that means being an example in the world economically and culturally and politically. The United States needs to be looked upon as that. So peppering the world with these kind of armaments, I would be, I would be committed to end that, at least significantly reduce it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Next question comes from Benjamin Pillis here. Hi, Benjamin. Hi. Would you be willing to work with North Korea if you were president to stop the creation of nuclear weapons? Sure. We, we've got to be engaged with North Korea. Um, at the same time, we also have to make sure we have them checked and we have them in a box. It's a very dangerous re regime. They could wreak a lot of havoc uh, and we have to be consistently engaged and I, I have no problem trying to do that. Uh, look, this, again, this is not easy. There's no magic wand uh, for any of these issues, but we, we have to be engaged. Thank you, Benjamin. Next question comes from Facebook, and the questioner is Joseph Hazelwood. He asks, will you commit to requiring women to register for the draft in the interest of equality? <laughs> well, we don't have a draft right now, so that, to me... Uh, but you do have to sign up for selective service. I mean, yeah. at least I remember having to do sure, that a number every, of years ago. Yeah, ago. every citizen should have to sign up, for sure.
And in terms of um, the draft itself, is that something you would repeal someday? I mean, it, it, it still exists in statute. Yeah, uh, I would have to look at that. I, you know, uh, hopefully it never, never comes to that. Um, yeah, so I'll okay. have to look at that. <laughs> Next question comes from Rachel Spira. Welcome, Congressman uh, Ryan. Thank, Thank you, you for coming to speak with us. Thanks for having me. As president, would you be working with members of both parties to promote true bipartisanship, and how would you do that? Yes, I, I, will, uh, I will be reaching across the aisle. Uh, we, we have got to heal these wounds. I work very closely with Republicans all the time, whether it's on the Great Lakes, whether it's on energy issues, whether it's on social and emotional learning in our schools. We, we have got to find the issues that we agree upon together and, and move on those issues. That's, that's really going to be critical for us. And I heard, had a great story the other day. There's this little room off of the old chamber uh, right in the Capitol, which now Statuary Hall, but it used to be the old House chamber. And someone was telling me the story how Lincoln used to come up to the Capitol building. And he sat in this room, and there was a little fireplace there. You could just picture it happening. And he would sit there in front of that fireplace, and he was talking to members of the House of Representatives and working them on, on equal rights and on all the big issues of the day. I pledge to do that. I'm in the House. I've been in the House for a long time. This is my 17th year. I will go up to the Capitol. I will sit with members of Congress. We have got to get this done. Again, it's not about dividing. It's about coming together. It's about America. We are at an inflection point in our country's history right now. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. The next 30 minutes is commercial free, so we can get to as many questions as possible. And we're going to start with Carolyn Morrill. Thank you. Uh, Hillary Clinton, former nominee of the Democratic Party after her loss hit the nail on the head by saying, I did not realize this country was so divided. How do you plan on getting us united again? I think it starts with respect. I think we've got to start respecting each other, even if we disagree. And we, we've got to care for each other. I mean, not to, to get sentimental about it, but We've got to care about each other. We're all in the same boat. We're all blessed to be Americans. And we've got to start from that point that we're human beings and we've got to respect each other. We don't always have to like each other. This is like what we tell our teenage kids, you know? Like, you've got to love each other, but we know you're not always going to like each other, but it doesn't matter. Um, that's the philosophy I'm going to bring. I'm going to listen. We, I think we have to listen. And I, I think Republicans have some good ideas. I think we need the free market to help move the needle and really scale things up. That, so let's sit down and work it out. I'm not here to be on an ego trip. I'm here to get the job done for our kids. And I think when you approach it with an open heart, an open mind, and a good deal of respect, then I think it can unlock some of the toxicity that we're dealing with today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Carolyn. Next question comes from Dan Bergeron. Welcome back. It's Thank great you. To see you. Back in New Hampshire. Thank you. Another important question: What does education funding mm -hmm. look like in Orion White House and locally here in Manchester and the rest of New Hampshire? Well, as you know, most of it is is uh, state funded, but I do believe that the federal government has more and more of an important role moving forward. We have got to get 
we've got to get the numbers up when it comes to uh, funding uh, students with disabilities. There's a 40% commitment by the federal government that we haven't got anywhere close to funding. Um, I believe, in, under my administration, we are going to focus on social and emotional learning. Our kids are coming to school with a tremendous amount of, of trauma. Kids in the United States, over 50% of them show up that, that show up at our public schools uh, and attend our public schools live in poverty, li are low-income kids. And they come with all of the issues that come with living in a low-income fashion. Social and emotional learning has been by connecting kids. So you connect kids to their teacher, to their students, to the school, to the broader community. You teach them how to handle their emotions. You teach them how to deal in social situations like bullying and the pressure you get around you know, uh, teenage drug use and teen sex. You teach them real techniques on how to deal with these things and then to de-escalate themselves and to handle the, the, the emotional pressures that come with being a kid. Now, why? And does this work? This has been shown in a, over 300,000 kids who have a robust social and emotional learning program. 11 percentile point increase in test scores. 10 percent increase in good behavior. 10% decrease in antisocial behavior, a 20% swing in the climate of the schools, and it closes the achievement gap. Because in my administration, we're going to take science and experience, and we're going to translate it into policies that actually matter. And we will begin to close the achievement gap with, with social and emotional learning. And the third piece is going to be vocational education. I think the federal government has a responsibility. One of the worst things we ever did was get rid of shop class. And now we've got people who need to move into the economy and have some of these skills, and these jobs are going unfilled. So we're going to focus on that as well, and we're going to pay for it. Thank you. I was looking for optimal numbers. Thank you. Thank you. Dan, thanks so much for your question. And uh, following up on that, when we talk with educators and candidates and they interface there in a school, the educators will say time and again, testing is taking the joy out of teaching. Oh. What's the balance between figuring out what kids are learning through testing yeah. and not making sure that you're squeezing out the rest of it? Yeah, I, th I think part of what we have to do is realize what others are doing so that, so that the Department of Education is sharing information to where you can go from your, your school district and plug in what the metrics are, what's the poverty rate, how many kids, you know, what's the free and reduced lunch rate, and all of this, and figure out what other communities, what other school districts are doing so that you can begin to say, okay, what is that balance between assessing a kid's ability and over-testing, which is happening uh, uh, today. Learning has to be fun. And we've got to take care of the kids, but learning has to be fun because we want our kids to be lifelong learners. I think that's gonna be critically important moving forward, and that means paying teachers. I think the social and emotional learning piece is key because there's a lot of fear in education today for a lot of kids who are dealing with a lot of, uh, a lot of trauma, and we've gotta move back, take a step back from the testing, and I want people to start seeing social and emotional learning as a way through social and emotional learning to increase test scores without having the huge pressure around testing. Okay. Next up is a social media question coming from Adrian Dassing. He asks, is an individual bound by law to pay federal income tax? <laughs> yes. <laughs> as much as we all dislike it, yes. This has been a conservative talking point that's been big here in New Hampshire lately. Taxation is theft. What do you think about that? 
taxation is the price we all have to pay for living in a civilized society where you have water and sewer and airports and education and uh, investments into education and social security and Medicare. Well, while we all have issues with this, and I think we need a huge government reform proposal, I don't think the government is running as efficiently as we need it to. I think Democrats need to take the lead on that. Uh, we all want to live in a civilized society, and that entails us making that contribution. Okay, next question is coming from Terrence Ganarian. Hi. Um, so as an immigrant and a, who's now a proud uh, U.S. citizen, right. I, I know what it is to be part of the American dream. Uh, my question is, what are your plans for immigration, specifically those individuals who are undocumented? I, there's two parts to the immigration, as we talked uh, a little bit earlier, uh, about making sure the border is secure, making sure drugs don't get in, making sure terrorists get in, and then having a compassionate e uh, immigration system that, that allows people to come into the country, especially caring for uh, refugees and people who are in trouble. And then I believe we need to f find a pathway to citizenship for people who are here, uh, who, are, who are working hard, who are playing by the rules. And we can figure out how to do it with paying back taxes or uh, paying a fine or whatever. But I think the country is going to be better off if we find a pathway. Um, my great-grandparents were Italian immigrants, and I remember to going to you know, Christmas Eve and the family parties and, and my great-aunts talking in broken English. I was born into an uh, immigrant family, and we appreciated that. We've got to get away from that. We've got to start seeing America's diversity as our greatest strength. And that means a compassionate way to get undocumented people out of the shadows and into our society where they can thrive and contribute in a, a variety of different ways that this country has always seen and highlighted and supported. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Terrence. And to follow up on that, Congressman, what does a, a compromise immigration bill come uh, out of the Ryan White House looking like? Well, I think it'll look a lot like the, the Gang of Seven bill that Marco Rubio and John McCain put together that I think got about 70 votes in the Senate uh, a few years back that they all kind of abandoned when, when President Trump came in and started throwing gasoline all over the place when it came around or, uh, issues ar around immigration. So that kind of bill where you, again, border security, make sure we're all firm, but then a compassionate pathway to citizenship in seven years, uh, paying a fine, paying back taxes, de depending on the circumstances, but making sure that there is a pathway there, including the DACA kids, making sure there's a fix for, for uh, the, the kids who had, we had deferred action on, that we bring them in the full citizenship as well. And what we've seen, and the projections are, 1.2 or 3 percent growth to the to the GDP. Now everybody who comes in is paying taxes and contributing to the economy and paying in the Social Security and paying in the Medicare and that's gonna bolster our economy. Next question comes from Olivia Zink. Hi, thanks Hi. for being with us. Thank you. And thank you so much for your support and sponsorship of HR1, the biggest democracy reform this country has seen, the For the People Act. I am really deeply concerned about how our elections are funded. Um, you spoke earlier about public funding of elections, but if elected, would you fix our democracy first? It's, it's essential. 
I mean, I think the, the, the democratic uh, way is getting distorted because of the money in politics. So the top 1% own 90% of the wealth. And when you look at who got the tax cut in the last round of, of, uh, of the Trump's tax cut, a lot of those people are huge donors uh, to the Republican Party. So they get hundreds of million dollars back in taxes, and then they dump them into these super PACs that end up spending money to get people elected who will continue down the road of, of keeping those, those tax cuts. So fixing the democracy has to be essential. I think it's the democracy and the economy. Those are the two things we really got to move on. So it, it will be a priority for me. I believe in publicly financing of elections. I've been supportive of that my entire career, not just because I hate raising money as an elected official, but I think it is the most corrosive thing happening in our democracy today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. And just to follow on that question, Congressman, uh, all sorts of candidates are making pledges about the kind of donations and money they won't take mm -hmm. in this race. So as a candidate, can you lay out what kind of money you're not going to be taking? In you know, I, have, I haven't made any pledges yet. I mean, I, I've never felt like if I take a contribution from somebody that somehow I'm obligated to vote for them. Um, I've accepted donations from a variety of people and voted against their interests. They're not always happy with that. But my own personal opinion is if, if you're accepting money and then you feel obligated to have to vote that way, you're in the wrong business. You're not representing your people. So I, at this point, I've not made any uh, pledges or anything uh, with regard to campaign finance other than to say, I think I'm the only candidate talking about publicly financing of elections. And that to me is the, the main commitment, the main push we need to have. And do you have a position on term limits? For members of Congress? Congress yeah, I say Congress and the Senate. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not a term limit fan. I never have been because in my experience, what you'll have is you'll have bureaucrats, whether they're in the Department of Defense, Department of Education, Army Corps of Engineer, wherever, that have 40 years experience. And then you have a member of Congress who's trying to get something done or a senator that's trying to get something done who does not have the level of experience as the bureaucrat you're trying to move with policy and they outfox you. And I knew this. I mean, when I first got in, these people I was dealing with, they knew a hell of a lot more than I did. Now I've been in 17 years. Now I know at least as much as they do and I have the authority to try to move them along. So I think it, you'll have staff and bureaucrats running the entire federal government. And I think that's a, that's a bad deal for us. And I've seen members of Congress who had been in 30 or 40 years called bureaucrats out and say, that's baloney because I've been here longer than you and you're going to do what we got elected to do by the people. I think it's, it's, it's giving away the store. It's giving away the power that sh should belong to the people through their elected representatives. Okay. Next question comes from Margaret Anderson. Hi. Thank you for coming. Are you in favor of ranked choice voting? <coughs> um, say it again. Are you in favor of ranked choice voting? Ranked choice. I don't know. I don't know. I, someone asked me this last night, and I have not looked at it, so I can't, I can't give you a, a good answer. It sounds really interesting to me. Um, I know they do it in Maine, and I was watching Jared Golden's race up there, and someone was kind of saying, oh, it's, it's a ranked choice. And I was like, what? <laughs> so give me some time to study up on that. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Social media question next from Nils Christensen. He asks, what will you do to stop the wasting of taxpayer money? This has got to be a major 
uh, initiative for Democrats. We don't talk enough about waste in the government. If you look at the Medicare uh, program, for example, there is $50 billion a year wasted in the Medicare program. That's a billion dollars a week. Now, we want Medicare. I'm not going to, so we need to put um, structures in place in our healthcare programs, in our uh, military uh, programs and in, in the Defense Department and agriculture and all of these to squeeze and get these programs running efficiently. We need a strong reinventing of government using data analytics, using metrics. There's no reason why we should be wasting this money. And I'm not saying we save that money in the Medicare program and we give it to Warren Buffett in a tax cut. I'm saying we save that money and reinvest it back into the program and extend the life of the program. But it is ridiculous for us to cede that territory to conservatives because all they do is they make it look like the government isn't working efficiently and then they cut the programs and they cut the funding. So we need to be, as defenders of healthcare for everybody, as defenders of uh, education, making sure these programs are running really efficiently. So we will have a big reinventing government initiative uh, that, that we will be proposing and I'm, I'm excited about it because I think it's 2019. Right? Trump wants to build the wall. We're talking about technology. Let's use that technology to really get the government working efficiently for the American people. Two things you just touched on there. Healthcare. Are you in support of Medicare for All? I've been on the Medicare for All bill since 2007. So I tell all the new people who are in Congress now, I said, I'm on Medicare for All before it was even cool, okay? Um, I think the natural next step is bring Medicare down to 50 or 55. If you want to stay on your private insurance, you can. Help people pay for it like the Affordable Care Act did where you would give people credits if they couldn't quite afford for the health care uh, piece, the Medicare piece. I would allow businesses with under 50 employees to be able to buy into the Medicare program. This will help with innovation. This will help with entrepreneurship. This will help with small businesses because they're getting killed today with health care costs. But I actually think this is not necessarily the, the right conversation. We can't just be talking about a health care system that covers us when, our, when we're sick. We've got to talk about a health care system that actually keeps us healthy. And how do we build incentives into the process for employers, for patients, and for doctors that get rewarded for keeping us healthy? 75% of our health care costs today are for chronic diseases that could be prevented, which means we've got to look at our food system. We've got to look at the stress in our, in our country uh, that we have, economic uh, and otherwise. We've got to look at our agriculture system uh, as well. So how do we have a system that isn't what we have today, which is disease management, right? And then you've got the healthcare companies and the pharmaceutical companies saying, how can I make money off of this thing, right? If we want to knock the, the socks off of or kneecap the pharmaceutical industry, let's figure out how to stay healthy. We spend two and a half times as much as every other industri industrialized country. We get worse results. That's a broken system. So part of it is us being competitive and healthy and ready to rock and roll against China. And to me, that means a system that moves towards prevention, 
factors in food as a component to the diseases. And then we need to set metrics over the next decade of how do we cut cardiovascular disease in half? How do we cut diabetes in half? And diabetes, just lastly, half the country today has either diabetes or prediabetes. A diabetic costs 2.3 times as much as every other patient. That is going to sink the healthcare system. So whether it's Medicare for all, private insurance, fee for service, out of pocket, VA, however you want to say it, that system's going to sink if, if half the country has diabetes. And so my pitch is going to be front loading it, talking about food, talking about prevention, talking about what we're giving our kids in our schools, getting us healthy again, and being less reliant on pharmaceutical companies. That's what we can do as an act of rebellion against the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, we'll get to Gail in a second here, but you mentioned agricultural policy. And it's too bad the Colby Sawyer student uh, isn't here today because she's asked this question repeatedly about how do you get more local food to people? Well, you have a policy uh, in the ag department and then circling back to the waste too. A lot of people see waste in the ag department, but how do you first reform that department? And then you're talking about making people healthier through food policy, explain. Yeah, so I wrote a book a few years ago called The Real Food Revolution. And in the subtitle, I talk about the return of the family farm. We've got to have agricultural policies that move to regional, regional and sustainable farming because it's better for the environment. It produces real food, not the highly, you know, crops that go into really highly processed foods. I think we need to reward and pay farmers for growing real food, growing more produce pay them for the transition out of where they are, and then we're gonna save the money in healthcare costs in the long run. We need to build out a strong urban agricultural agenda where we're actually closing down the gap where they call food deserts, where there's not a grocery store within a mile or two of where many people live, same issue in, in rural communities. So build out this agricultural system to promote and pay farmers more to grow this healthy food and transition away from the traditional row crops. They're still going to do that, but it's better for the environment too because they don't use all the pesticides. You know, we have algae blooms in the Great Lakes. There's a dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi River because of all the chemicals running down and going into the Gulf of Mexico. We're destroying our environment. And just say lastly, what one of my, uh, I'm, I mentioned this in Iowa, um, we need to pay farmers to sequester carbon. Farmers can be a big part of the solution of reversing climate change because they can help with some regenerative agricultural techniques, no-till farming, cover crops, all of these methods can actually in the long run help us put more carbon into the soil and we should pay farmers to do that as well. So you can, this is what I'm saying, if we come together, sit down with farmers, sit down with public health people, sit down with the people in the food industry and say, how do we do this? It could be good for the environment. It could be good for our healthcare system. You got kids in our society that will be healthier and have better cognitive functions. So our kids are in school and they're focused and concentrating, which is what we need them to do. Win, 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 win. And if Monsanto loses in the process, hey, so be it. But most of us are going to win by breaking down this current system. Okay. Next question comes from Gail Taylor. Hi. Hi. Would you Sorry you got stuck up there listening <laughs> hey, to me while you standing. It's great. It's he got good. me all fired up, though. That was his fault. Good. Uh, would you support uh, overturning Citizens United? Oh, my God, yes. Can we do it right now? 
Yeah, yeah I just think yeah. the the dark money has been has been corrosive to the political environment and we see it every day and these ads show up and you don't even know who donates to these big super PACs and these people who just got the tax cut can dump it into the system and write five ten million dollar checks it's obnoxious it needs to end thank you Thank you, Gail. Uh, circling back, you said something about climate change there. Uh, you talk about coming from this Rust Belt district, <coughs> and, and that's a tough issue, uh, at least as some people see it, talking about that in industrial areas. So when the conversation does turn to climate change in Youngstown, Ohio, how do you talk about it when you're home? Jobs. I, I believe that an aggressive agenda around climate means jobs, and we've got to stop seeing it as a negative. I'll give you two or three or ten examples, depending on how much time you have. But I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple of really good ones. Electric vehicles. So right now there's one to two million electric vehicles in the world. By 2030, there's going to be 30 million electric vehicles. I want those made in the United States. I want the batteries made in the United States. I want the platforms made in the United States. I want the steel made in the United States. You know, you get my point. Same with the batteries, same with the charging stations. Uh, some estimates have it as a multi-trillion dollar opportunity for business just rebuilding the charging stations to charge these cars. Be huge benefit for the environment. So how does, what does that mean to someone who's struggling to make ends meet? It means a good job and, and we should, again, sit down with the venture capitalists, sit down with the Department of Energy, sit down with the big three, sit down with the supply chain. Uh, and, and, the, and the President of the United States needs to convene and use the weight of the office not to bash former First Ladies, but to convene and get the American economy going. You know who dominates the electric vehicle market now? China. 40% of it. We're at 20%. Do the same thing around solar, right? These are all things we want to do for climate, but it's just a different way of saying to the average person who's struggling to make ends meet, has a health care issue, opiate crisis, Climate is way over here, not because they don't care, but because the pressures of daily life don't allow them to entertain those, those bigger problems. Solar, trying to control 60% of the solar uh, market. Those are jobs. And if we have tax policies and investments from the Department of Energy and other investments and incentives through the tax code, new market tax credits and all, all of these things, drive that investment into the distressed communities from the old economy, right? So if you've lost jobs, if your wages are down, how do we get all of these investments sprinkled around the country? So invest into the smaller communities and then get this private sector, which is why I say we can't be hostile to the, to the, gover to the um, private sector because the federal government is not gonna reverse climate change. Just like the federal government didn't go to the moon, it was the private sector, the technologies, the engineers who worked for the private sector, they got us to the moon. We set the policy, put some investment, put some skin in the game, catalyze, and then let's go. And I think it's a huge job opportunity, and that's how I talk about it at home. Okay, uh, social media question here coming from <coughs> Patrick O'Hare on an issue that is uh, really bubbled up here in the Democratic primary. Uh, does he support reparations, i.e. reparations for slavery? Yeah, I support the, uh, there's a bill to form a commission, uh, which I've always been supportive of and I will continue to support, which will uh, study the impact of, of, of slavery. I mean, clearly we can't 
account for the damage, social, cultural, political, economic, that has, has been done because of slavery and its aftermath. And so I think it's important for us to, to have that uh, knowledge, to have that information as a part of a conversation. But what the, the bigger question is, will we make investments into closing the opportunity gaps that exist in communities of color? Are we going to address the structural racism that is in our society today, in our criminal justice system, uh, in our education system? Yes, we have to. And this information can be very informative as we aggressively try to close those gaps down. Okay, we just have a few minutes left here. I'm curious, in a big picture question, what adversity have you faced in your life that has made you a better leader? Well, you know, growing up, uh, you know, in a community that had uh, economic issues, uh, my parents were divorced. I mean, that's always uh, semi-traumatic on a, on a young kid uh, for me and my brother and, and trying to overcome that. Um, but what I've learned is that your adversity uh, is a roadblock in, in some instances. But if there are people around you that help you as a kid, especially, you can overcome those adversities, those heartbreaks that you have. And I think it's important, and this is why it's a main theme in the campaign, is, is how do we come together? Um, because I know I, with all the challenges that come with that particular circumstance, um, the community was around me. It was my coaches, it was my teachers, it was the neighbor who would kick you in the rear end if you needed it, and sometimes kick you in the rear end if you didn't need it, um, but was there for you, and they loved you, and they cared about you, and the, the idea that we're all, uh, we're all coming together. Another one was when I got hurt. I thought I was gonna be the quarterback of the Cleveland Browns when I was growing up, and that was like all my eggs were in one basket. And I blew my knee. I went, got a football scholarship to be a quarterback at Youngstown State University. And I was so excited. It was a Division I college, and I was going on to live my dream. First scrimmage, I blew my knee out. And, you know, shattered, shattered the dreams. And now they had to get Baker Mayfield, and now he's the quarterback <laughs> there. So, I mean, I'm sorry, but I think they're going to be okay. Um, and that, that was really challenging. I mean, because that broke my identity, really, as, a, as a, this quarterback. Um, and I had, to, I had to overcome that and really reassemble, you know, who I was moving forward, but drew a lot from that. And that got me into politics, and here I am running for president. So God works in mysterious ways. And last question, we got about a minute here. You are unique in any candidate running for president in that you've lived in New Hampshire for an extended period of time. What was your favorite thing about living here when you went to uh, UNH Law, then Franklin Pierce Law School? Oh, the fall. I mean, are you kidding me? You can't even explain it to people. We have uh, on our TV set at home, you know, when it goes quiet and they start flashing pictures, and one of the pictures has got to be from New Hampshire. I mean, the, the leaves are so vivid. And I would tell my wife, I'm like, that's, that's got to be New Hampshire. That, so the fall in New Hampshire, oh, nothing like it. So I'm going to be here a lot in the fall, okay? <laughs> All right, Congressman Tim Ryan, thank yeah. you so much for this Thanks. conversation with the candidate. We thank you, our audience of New Hampshire voters. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. 
If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.